I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Scott O'Neill. Scott has had an amazing career in the sports industry. He's a former president of Madison Square Garden, and he recently stepped down as CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, every interview I do, I spend a lot of time preparing ahead of time. I develop an overall approach to the episode, I write out a list of questions on a piece of paper, and so I had a, a plan of attack going into this one. I plan to ask him a bunch of questions about a book he recently published titled Be Where Your Feet Are. And that's not what happened at all. About two minutes into the interview, I ended up throwing the questions out the window. And we actually ended up having a deep conversation about family, life, failure, and hard work. And I learned a lot about what he had to say about navigating that tension between work and family. And I learned a lot from his approach to developing a strong organizational culture. And I found him to be such an authentic person. And so I've listened to this episode about four or five times since recording because there's so much in here that has helped me out and I know that will help you out as well. Anyways, I'm really excited to share this episode with you. So please welcome to the show, Scott O'Neill. It's great to be here. I'm thrilled. I'm honored. I'm humbled. And before we uh, get started, I just want to say thank you for your service. Um, I have uh, some family that have served in the army and in the Navy. And I'm so humbled that you do what you do. So I get to do what I do. And I never a day goes by that I'm not thankful, appreciative and grateful for the men and women that, that serve this country so honorably. Well, Scott, thank you so much for making time to talk to us on the podcast and, and thank you for paying your taxes so I can do, <laughs> I can do what I do. So I want to talk about your book today, but before we dive into it, one of the things that kind of stood out to me as I was reading it is a lot of times in the military, we think that the grass is greener on the other side. That like if we get out, we go into the corporate world, like we're going to, our lives are going to be completely different. Everything's better. We're not working crazy hours. But when I read your book, 
I noticed that you do all those things and you are in the corporate world. So could you just start off by sharing a little bit of your corporate experience with us and kind of like what your personal tempo has been like? I mean, I'm definitely not an example of the nine to five life. So I'm not even sure, let's put it this way, during COVID, the biggest surprise to me was how amazing family dinners were. And that's just because I haven't been with one in 20 years. And so I, um, you know, I have... I don't want to be a martyr. Like I've loved my career. I love my life. I'm very passionate about the work I do, but the hours are, by the way, I'm not working right now currently. So I'm like, I'm living the dream right now. I left a few months ago, which we can get into or not. But before that, I would typically leave the house around seven. And, um, you know, between the, the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils and concerts, you're probably talking somewhere around 120 nights a year, you know, home by 1130-ish. And then there's travel, you know, some some away games, and then you're going to meetings or conferences. So you're probably talking all in, you know, 100, I don't know, 80 days. So every other day, you're, you're not really home. So is the grass always greener? It's different. You know, you, you it's just different. It's not better or worse. It's like Kentucky bluegrass and I can't think of another grass. I'm sure there's a good one. I only know that one from Caddyshack. So we'll go like centipede. We'll just throw centipede out there. there. (laughs) I would say that, you know, I've never met anybody who's been successful. We can define success later, but successful that hasn't worked unreasonably hard. And so I just haven't found it. And I think I'm sure there is somebody. And I'm sure when that person identifies, everybody will run for whatever that is. But I I love it. I, I love being part of a team. I love being part of a mission, you know, and I, I don't mean mission, like you might do mission, but for us, like the mission, like to change, you know, I want to change the world in, in my own way. I want to create an environment that's the greatest place to work in the world. And through that and in that, you get to change people's lives and generations of families. So, so I, I feel like, I don't know, I feel grateful and blessed, but in terms of grass is always greener. I don't know. I think that you should figure out why you're on this earth. I know why I'm on this earth. Like I know I'm here to help develop the next generation of great leaders and to make an impact in the communities where I live, work and play. That's why I'm here. I a hundred percent know why I'm here and that's where I spend my time. And I do that at home. I do that at work. I do that at church. I do that in the community. And I think once you figure that out, the what is less consequential, meaning, you know, whether you do that in the army or whether you do that working at the local YMCA, whether you do that for a sports team, whether you do that in corporate America, doesn't matter as much as long as you know what your purpose is, then you can live towards it. Oh man, Scott, like you just speaking to my heart on that one. I remember it was 2014. I like sat down for the first time in my career, in my life, and just gave a deliberate effort towards finding out my why, what my purpose was. And what I came up with was helping others lead with the best version of themselves. And to your point, like it's so freeing because the what doesn't matter. I can do it in uniform. I can do it out of uniform. I can do it through the blog. I can do it through daily interaction with people. But at the end of the day, that's what gives me energy. That's what makes me wake up in the morning. And so I appreciate that you said that and that it's regardless of what you're doing. By the way, that's an incredible why. I mean, yours is it's an incredible why. Probably better articulates what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I was just in Mozambique um, for, for three weeks helping to build a school, which was really a really powerful experience. I went with my 18-year-old daughter. And I've been, I've been blessed to have daughters that truly go, they're global citizens, and they go serve, which I, I appreciate. I didn't do that as a kid. I mean, we didn't have, we couldn't rub two nickels together, so it's a little different. But my girls, you know, they one of them's been 
sleeping in a, in a tent and working with orphans in Zambia. Another one um, has done um, worked in a Syrian refugee camp in Athens. And this one was in Mozambique, helped build a school and dragged me along. And boy, you want to feel grateful. You go to a third world country and go surf. And you're, you're building a school and you're, you're looking out over the scaffolding that's made of tree branches. You know, and you can't believe you're actually standing on it. You look out over the side and kids are studying under trees. You're walking into houses. They've got no running water. They have no electricity. And I know this country's been, been, been had the crack, crap kicked out of it for the last couple of years. But I, I got to tell you, there, there's no country in the world like this. And I, I felt such an overwhelming sense of, of gratitude and appreciation. And I got sick over there, which is a little scary, too. We have all the blessings. The question is, is like, what are you going to do with them? You know, how passionate are you about whatever your why is or how driven are you? What are you wholly focused on and what are you willing to give up? That's what nobody talks about. Like, nobody told me about that. For me, it's like, I, it's like faith, family, work, everything else I kind of gave up. And, and that's not, you know, it's not great for my friends, right? Because the only friend, you know, I, I mean, I have more free time now, but when I'm in the thick of it, I see my friends at games where I work with them. Like, I don't have that luxury because Life's about trade-offs. And when you figure that out, you know, decisions become a little easier. You get a little more discipline. It reminds me of a story. I don't know if you, it was in your book or somewhere else, man. I read too many books. But a Roman Catholic pope once asked Michelangelo to tell him the secret of his genius. And he wanted to know how the artist created a masterpiece like the Statue of David. And you know what Michelangelo told him? He said, it's simple. I just removed everything that wasn't David. It's exactly, Love <laughs> I loved it too when I read it. So clearly like it's the first time you're hearing it. So it wasn't in your book, but yeah, that's just so powerful. I, I think that at least for me, like I tried to do everything, um, which you kind of talk about in your book. I tried to be the best parent, be the best husband. I tried to be the best at work, that work-life balance thing. And I just found out that uh, that's really like, it's impossible to do. And you have to cut stuff away from your life to really focus on the things that matter. That's why I talk about be where your feet are, because I think balance is the wrong analogy. I think that's, I always think about seesaw and like balance is no fun either. And every time I speak to groups, especially young people, they're like, well, how do you find work-life balance? And like, I don't even look for it. I, I look to be wholly present wherever I am and to create meaningful moments and memories wherever I am. And you think about the time you have, I've got three girls, 21, 18, 14. So they're a little, little kind of out of the out of the realm of real pain, but I still got a little heart of it. But when my girls were teenagers, all of them, I mean, do you think you're creating memorable moments in the morning? We're not. I mean, we had chaos in my house, like chaos. It's like between the cereal or somebody's shirt and they can't find their shoes and where's my water bottle and my backpack's missing and I didn't charge my phone, all that crap. It's like my wife and I are like, okay, this is surviving advanced time. It's just, it's like the NCAA tournament, just get them out of the house. There's no meaningful moments there, <laughs> right? There's school. I'm, at work. I'm with you. I'm with you. Chaos. So then you come home and I'm getting home late. So for me, it's like, where am I finding meaning? What am I doing with my weekends? I'm, I'm working weekends. I work Saturday, Sunday. So it's like, where am I finding meaning? And so when I have that hour, that's what you have to ask yourself. Like, if you're really honest with yourself, like with your spouse, your partner, or your roommate, where am I finding meaning? Where am I creating opportunity? Like for my wife and I, if we go for a walk a day, a walk a week, a walk every two weeks, if it goes longer than that, we call them non-transaction walks, meaning we don't talk about, hey, I got to take the kids here. I got to do this. I got to nothing. We just talk. It's like if we have those relatively regularly, we have better communication. 
We have better marriage. We have better love in our house. My kids, I may be an hour, hour and a half. How am I spending the hour? Like I asked you, like, what am I going to do with that particular hour? Am I going to be on my phone? Am I going to be watching like another Seinfeld rerun or the office rerun? I could. Am I going to binge on Netflix? Maybe. Am I going to have my laptop open sitting on my, on my lap while they're sitting next to me? Maybe. Are we going to be sitting down and having a meal? Or are we going to be doing everything at once? And what's the conversation look like? What do you want to talk about with your kids? What do you want to talk about with your wife? It has to be intentional. And that's the word I want everyone to focus on. It's just be intentional. And it's okay if you say, I need to check out today. To my wife, Lisa, hey, I'm toast. She's like, all right, just go, go, go outside, go, go to bed, go for a drive, go, go on a bike ride, go do your thing. You know, because sometimes you need a break. How many intentional breaks are you taking? Take an intentional break, that's great. But if you're trying to do everything at once and it's just a big amalgamation of crap, there are no memories and there are no meaningful moments. And that time has then gone to waste. So it doesn't matter how much, get off at six o'clock and come home, you know, and watch more Ted Lasso, by the way, which is a brilliant show. Oh, it's a great show. (laughs) It's the best show I've ever seen. I want my right-hand person, like in any organization I am, I want it to be Coach Beard. He's- I love Coach Beard. Yeah, no, no, that that show is about team and- family and culture and transformation. I mean, that, that's a brilliant, brilliant show. Everybody should watch it. All right, Scott, you're ruining, you're ruining the interview, man. Like you keep, <laughs> you, you keep making this fun and I'm trying to stick to these questions. Um, so why did you write this book, Be Where Your Feet Are? Like, like what was the, the thing that drove you to finally sit down and put pen to paper? Yeah, it's not a great story. Uh, my best friend took his own life. His name is Will Carden. Uh, we met at business school, Harvard Business School. And uh, we're thick as thieves ever since. My kids call him Uncle Will. Um, and he was suffering pretty intensely from depression, had some imbalances and had been in and out of some treatment centers. And, and at this particular time, he, he did not check himself back in and drove to his parents' home. And, and I went up to his room and shot himself. And I didn't, I didn't understand. Like, I, didn't, I saw him a couple weeks earlier. We, we had this baseball tournament, my brother's and I. Um, put on every year called Obats. And we, he was, he always comes like 50 of our friends come. We ran out of the minor league park. It's actually a lot of fun. And he comes and he was really down and I didn't get it. Like I had no idea. I didn't understand mental illness at all. And I was like, Hey, just be happy. Choose happiness. You know, <laughs> it's like so sad. Even think about it. It gives me like, I'm like sick to my stomach or like, I'm like, serve others. That's what I do. When I'm not feeling good about myself, he's like, kind of like, you know, staring in his face. And, um, and I think about that moment because I remember when we had that conversation we're in the diners, two of us, we had peeled away from the big group and we needed some time. And I mean, it was awful. And, um, and then two weeks later, I get a call from, uh, there are three of us that are, are very good friends, got in Jared Stone. He's telling me the story. I'm like, literally like dropped the phone and I, 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 I just fell apart. I, mean, I literally, in the worst dad moment of all time, I read about this in the book, in the worst dad moment of all time, I just walked downstairs and. Cause my wife's like, you need to say something to the kids. They're going to see on social media. I just went downstairs and I just said like, uncle Will's dead. And I just turned and walked away. And, um, my wife's like, well, nice job. And I was like, uh, I was just in a fog. And, um, I went to go, you know, a couple of weeks later, they had a funeral and I spoke at the funeral and I was it. Like I left the funeral and I just was, I, I was, not capable. I was, couldn't get out of bed, couldn't go to sleep, you know, couldn't function. I was like at work, somebody would say something. I would burst into tears and just walk away. 
like that unrelated. I was just a mess. I was like, you know, and I didn't raise my hand, like, which is crazy to think about. Um, and I, I had never, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm a happy, I'm happy balance. I wake up in the morning, I pop out of bed. Hey everybody, you know, and, uh, I'm raring to go. I mean, I, I don't like to sleep. I, I like to be up in the world. Um, I like to make people laugh. I like to smile, I like action. I like deals. I like activity. I like the day. And I, I just found myself struggling and, and it wasn't like a day, it was months. And so I started to write to heal. Anyway, I'm, I'm dragging the story about Rachel Long out, but, and I just wrote, you know, I don't know if you ever saw a movie Forrest Gump when he's running. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the first time I got it. Cause I was writing like he was running in that movie. He's kind of running to get away, you know, just running. And I was writing to get away. And I just wrote and wrote. I wrote like 300 pages on my iPad, just typed it. And a lot of it was like nonsensical garbage. But most of it, the stuff that made sense to me was, here's something that fell apart in my life. And here's what I learned. And I started to reach out to my friends, um, or they were reaching out to me. And I'd ask them like, hey, is there a time in your life where you really struggle? Like, how'd you overcome it? So I was just learning. I was going through my own process of struggle and recovery. And then my wife had her, her friend come. I, I didn't know it was work straight, but he came over. He's written several books. Um, his name is Randall Wright. And he said, what you writing there, Scott? I was like, nothing really. You know, <laughs> it's like, I was like, it's kind of my own thing. And, and he said, well, let me just read some of it. I was like, nah, it's not really ready for, he's like, well, let me, let me just take a look. And he's like, you know, no CEO is right about this stuff. I was like, right about what? It's like failure. They don't write about mental health challenges. They don't write about struggling with your family or, getting fired or running a company into the ground or being so broke, you have to sign up for like a credit service that tracks your credit for seven years. It's like, nobody talks about that. And the reality is we're all dealing with different versions of it. He said something funny, like, let's hope not everybody deals with all this stuff. And he's like, look, what if you help somebody? What if you help one person? One. I was like, well, then it'd be worth it. He's like, we'll do it then. And so that, that kind of got me off my butt and I, I just went through the process and got an agent and went through all that, but it, it was hard. It was um, actually like uh, emotional thinking about it. That decision from your innermost personal thoughts. Okay. Mashed up with what I know is the ego part, which is like, I have something to say that somebody else will read and get something from that's complicated. And then being a mess, like not being, I'm confident. I'm self-assured. I don't, stuff brushes off me. Like I can take a punch. Like I, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I can handle myself, you know? And so I was fragile. It was a fascinating experience. One of my favorite writers is a Roman philosopher named Seneca. And like, he's wanting to help people. And at the same time, he's like the personal advisor to Nero. So he has this crazy deranged boss that he's dealing with. And he wants to help people at the same time. And he recognized that there was a, a little bit of tension there between like this major role he's playing in Roman politics and what he wants to do. And so he writes a letter to a friend. He's like, basically, I'm just in the hospital bed over here sharing my lessons with you and your hospital bed over there. Like, I'm not better. I just want to help. That. Yeah, like I just want to help you and help all these other people out. Without that halo. You know, oh, it's like, yes. you have this platform. And I don't know. It's like, that's the gift of sports. The gift is that I have a platform and then I get to use it for either good or personal gain. And I'm like, okay, I just want to use it for good. And so, yeah, but that, that's such an interesting analogy. But yeah, if you're, you know, I have this notion of the book, it's called API, assume positive intent. And um, it's really hard for people to assume positive intent. Relationships at work, 
In fact, it's a common language means to work. And so when my executives, when something would go wrong, like South, 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 like falling apart, deal fell apart, best persons leaving the organization, something bad happened. They would walk in there and say, Scott, I need you palms up, like literally palms up. And I need you to API because they know I'm very emotional and I react very strongly and I love to attack and debate. And they're like, but I don't need that guy right now. Right now I need a solution. I need your brain. I need your experience. I need your compassion. It's really interesting. Once you create like that common language, it actually allows you to operate in a way that takes away some of the layers of crap that the most of us go through life with. With this book, it's like, if you read Be Where Your Feet Are, I just want you to assume positive intent. When you pick that book up, just assume positive intent. I appreciate that. And that's actually like a language that's kind of worked into my own family since reading your book. It's a language my wife and I will start using with each other um, is just, hey, API. Like, <laughs> right. We have it because we, I have a house of girls. We have chalkboards around the house and they all have API on them. And then we actually carved in a slate. And if you walk out of our house, the last thing you see before you walk out of our house is API carved in a slate. Because can you imagine? I'm a work in progress, by the way. I'm, I'm not 100%. Dude, we both are. Like, like yeah. I'm a mess talking to a mess. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to make sense of it right now. So like, yeah. no but, halos but, but, here. I love that you're doing that with your wife. I, I do it with my wife and my kids. By the way, they have got no problem zigging me back. I've got my, my two oldest are like the crash sisters. Like they can't drive. Like I almost like can't believe that two people could be this bad of drivers. In fact, and if you know this, because I'm sure you get some special military insurance, if you're so bad at driving, your insurance company calls you and says like, I'm sorry, we just don't want to do this anymore. And I'm like, no, 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 let's work something out. I can't, I pay more. Like, no, no, no. There are services for people like you. I'm like, what do you mean people like me? For what? It's my daughters. Yeah. They oh, take Whenever something happens and it does regularly, they say, Assume positive intent. I'm like, keep two hands on the wheel. <laughs> Check your rear view mirror occasionally. Okay. And do you know what defensive driving is? And they're like, API dad. So yeah, it can be used against you as well. Hey folks, it's Joe here. And I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you were looking for an education, this is a place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. Man, I wish that people could see the list of questions, like how the interview was supposed to flow today. <laughs> it is, it's completely gone off the rails, but we're going to, we're going to run with it. I love how like you say, you talk about being intentional, right? Like you talk about just being deliberate in your interactions. And one of the things that you talked about in the book was when you started to have to make that transition between work and home, because that's something I know we struggle with too, because like so I'll have a bad day at work. And I'll just carry it with me in home and like, it'll affect everything. Or like, I'm really worried about something coming up 
the very next week and my mind's just kind of consumed with it, but you kind of, I feel like you kind of developed a system. Yeah. I, I mean, I developed a system like, you know, through the school of hard knocks, if you will. I always like to say like, I, I was raised by a strong woman. I married a strong woman and I'm raising some really strong women. So I have some very strong women in my life and I came home. I was with the, the Knicks at the time. I was president of Madison Square Garden and we were getting thumped pretty good. I mean, you know, it was like, I was there four years. First two years, we were very good. Last two years and a year after we had the playoffs. Anyway, but the first two years was, was rough and we got thumped. So I got home. I was in a bad one. I hate to lose. I got, I have a competitive problem. And so I don't handle losing very well. And I don't always appreciate winning as much as I should, but I do to hate to lose. And so I walk in the door and I'm stomping around. It's probably 11, 1130. I'm stomping around the kitchen. My wife, comes down. she's like, what, what is happening down here? And, uh, you know, the kids are asleep and I was like, are you serious? She's like, yes, I'm serious. It's like, I'm like, did you see the game? She's like, yeah, I saw the game. Did you see us get booed off the court? We got booed off the court. Okay. And it's bad. She's like, yes, I did. Um, and she said something like, I didn't even need my TV on to hear those boos or something like that, which made it worse. So I'm, I'm, I'm pissed. Like I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm upset. And she's like, Hey, my man, this ain't going to work. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And I'm still like, you know, are you kidding me? And she's like, Hey, all the stuff out there. It's a bunch of noise. It's a big hurricane. I get it. You come in here. I need a husband. I need a father. That's what I need. I'm usually confrontational in the beginning. Then I step back and I think about it, you know, cause I need, I need a window. Like she's right. My wife was right aloud, which is really awkward. But you know, I learned after the first five years, I used to fight her on everything. And after a while, she was right so many times. I said, like, step back. I said, okay. I said, I, I hear you. I said, I hear you. I understand. And so the next day I'm talking to one of my buddies on the phone. And I'm like recounting a story, but in a way that's not making my wife seem like in the most favorable light. Okay. And I'm just like, and then she's harassing me about this. He's like, hey, do you have a worry treat? And I was like, what? I was like, is the whole world losing their minds? I said, what the heck is a worry treat? So why come home? Uh, he's a, a New York banker. So he's got like some tense in his life. Come home. So I just put my hand on this tree and all my worries flow up into the tree. And then I walk in the house. Wow. And I was like, my man, I've been looking for one of those my whole life. I don't have one on my property. And he said, well, that's not the point. I said, okay, well, what is the point? And he said, well, the point is, is you've got to figure out how to transition. And so whatever it is you need to do, what is your trigger point? Is it the ride home? Is it the walk up the driveway? Is it walking the dog? Is it listening to music? Like you've got to center yourself so you can be where your feet are when you're walking that house. And so that was my, you know, 24 hour later, I came back in. And I said, okay, I understand what you're asking for and I can do that. And so my ride home became my howl at the wind time. And that's the time, depending on what has happened, I'll either call somebody who I love and I need to exercise my demons. I turn up the music and sing. I roll down the windows. I believe it or not meditate. I can think, but that time when I hit that driveway, okay, I'm back to being a dad. And that's, that's something that I spent quite a bit of time thinking about. Now, am I perfect? No. Am I a thousand times better? Yes, I am. And so I'd encourage everybody to just make sure that they have, that they're again, intentionally and consciously walking in. If you're walking in and you had a terrible day and you walk in and say, Hey, honey, I had the worst day. I'm going to be a little angry. I'm going to be a little frustrated. And I'd appreciate your patience. Think of how that changes the whole conversation. 
Your wife's like, okay, I got it. Do you need space? Yes, I need space. That's okay, right? Because we're not we're not perfect. But you walk in and it's like, what we're having this for dinner? Where's my sweater? There's nothing productive about that. Nothing. Like nothing good can come of it. And so when you start to understand who you are, how you react, communicate a little better, a little differently, I think that'll change the dynamic in your house for the better. That is so huge. And everything you're saying, like I used to do that too all the time. And we finally got to a point where we were naming like what it was like, Hey, I'm giving you a heads up. This is all the stuff that happened today. Exactly what you said. Like, I'm not going to be myself tonight. Yeah. But that was huge because before that I'll just, I'm not going to repeat it, but everything you were just saying is what I would say when I would come home because I was (laughs) stressed out and uh, angry. One thing, Scott, that um, even as you talk, like this is what it reminds me is like a lot of authors don't have the experience that you have they are able to like do all this research and sit in their house all day and write books, but like they don't have it. So like, this is very reminiscent of my interview with Kim Scott because both, yeah, she's amazing because both of you have this uh, wealth of experience. And like you said, like you're not getting it right because it's not about perfection. It's about progress. And you're just kind of like sharing your journey with, with everybody else. And like, I'm, I'm learning a lot in this interview one of the other things that you talk about in your book is failure. And I, I love your chapters on failure because it, uh, I'll let you talk about it, but like, could you talk about your very public failure and then what you mean in the book when you talk about changing the race? Sure. Well, I've had a few public failures. Probably the most public one was when I, I got fired from, from Madison Square Garden, but I also ran a company to the ground called Hoops TV. That was, that was painfully public. And again, like I don't, it's like when you get fired from a, you know, a job that people are, care about and you're in the paper and you pick up the New York Times or USA Today or the Daily News or the Post and, and you're reading like a significant story that, that you were just fired. Um, I was surprised it hit me so hard. Like I was surprised I was so sensitive or like I like gobbled it up. Like I kept reading it and I went online. I read it like it was I just did. I did everything I would tell anyone I cared about not to do. I would like drive up to drop my kids off of school and like the little like 23 year old student aide, teacher aide would say like, Mr. O'Neill, what are you doing here? And I'd be like, I'm like, what the heck is happening? You know? And then you have like the awkward people who don't know, like, should I call this guy? Should I not? You should always call by the way, or always text and just tell them you love them and anything you do. But like, they don't know what to say and your identity. I'm sure I imagine it's in the armed services as well. It's like your identity is very much wrapped up in what you do but that's not who you are. I got to stop right there. Like I just did an episode, I haven't released it yet, where I talk about that with somebody who wrote an article about identity. And he said this thing, he said, don't become a golem to your service. And what he meant by that is like in the Lord of the Rings, like before Gollum had the ring, he was a normal hobbit, just like everybody else. And it just consumed him. It became all of him, the ring that he relied so much on. It changed who he was. Yeah, I think in the military, we deal with it a lot. Like we get our identities wrapped up in our service. And so the thought of not being a captain or a colonel, lieutenant colonel or a general or or wearing a uniform, like scares the crap out of people. And when that gets taken away, like people really, really struggle with it. Right. I think it's analogous to sports because you're in the sports world. Like even now, the people who don't know me well are like, but you run the Sixers. And I was like, no, I don't. But I'm the same person, just not sitting in a seat right now. It's really fascinating. And I think when you come out 
and that particular time I came out, I was, I was pretty shaken. Um, and it just took me a few months. Like, and again, it's a high profile job. You get severance, you get all these benefits. You have no pressure. It's like when I was at work before, I mean, I was getting foreclosure. Notes. I didn't have any money. When you get these, I mean, it's like crimey river. You know, you might say like, life is not bad. And I'm going to play hoop every day and drop my kids off of school. You have a non-compete. You can't really, you're not really allowed to work. I mean, it's no, it's different, you know, but emotionally I was like beaten. And I just kept thinking about like, is that who I am? Am I my job or am I a father, a husband, a member of my church, a member of this community, a friend, a son? And I think when you start thinking about who you are, and not defining yourself by the, the uniform you wear or the um, number of stars on your sleeve or however you identify with yourself. You're just much more than that. It doesn't mean you can't be passionate about your job. It doesn't mean that's not a big part of your life. It just means that's not who you are. And it took me a while to dig out of that. I want to share something with you too, that like it, as you're talking, it made me think about it is um, March of 20, I came out of Afghanistan and I was in the, you know, the, the front office in the entourage, like working for General Miller over there. And, you know, being around a four-star general as an officer, like the waves kind of part for you when, you, when you're trying to do stuff and, and you start identifying with being a part of that group, a part of that team. And then, you know, with Afghanistan in general, being a part of that mission. And uh, I came back from the deployment a little bit early because COVID hit, you know, like I, I wasn't necessary anymore. And uh, so I'm sitting at home by myself, like not really working, waiting for the next job to pick up again. And I don't have this identity anymore of being the guy around the, around the four star. And I, like, I struggled with it. And uh, it took me like, I didn't realize how much ego I had placed on top of myself and was identifying with that. And so right. I think that's the word ego, ego, ego. It's like, and I would say ego is the great deal killer. And, and you just have to separate confidence. If you're confident and you have humility, my brother has it says the best. He says an ounce of humility and a handful of gratitude will go a long way. Right. And I would just add confidence to that third leg of that stool. So if you're confident, you're humble and you're grateful, life's pretty good. There's nothing good, nothing good about your ego helping make decisions, taking over for you, influencing who you are, what you take, who you surround yourself with, all that stuff. It happens to all of us, right? It happened to you there. It's happened to me before. It's, it's dangerous. There was one thing I wrote down in my notebook at the time. And uh, yeah, I'm a huge nerd, Scott. Like, so I read, I read, <laughs> I read a lot of old stuff just because I, I find there's a lot of wisdom there. But it was one of Aesop's fables. And he talked about a weasel who got in a, a barrel of rats. He went through a hole in the barrel. He was super skinny, ate a bunch of rats, and he couldn't get out of the barrel because he was too fat. And then a crow like landed on the barrel and said, if you want to get out, you got to be skinny again. The moral of this story was that like once your ego gets big, the only way to get out of the situation, that mental space you're in, is to make your ego small again. And it was once I like shirked, you know, got, got rid of all that stuff got rid of the ego and just focused on what you said, being grateful for the opportunities I had, like being humble that, you know, I'm still being able to serve, you know, there's still a mission for me that I still have a family and then being confident that like, yeah, I did my service and now it's time to move on to the next thing. Like that's huge. But it's not, not that you don't want to reach for things. It's not that you don't want to have some sort of goal and, 
It's not that you shouldn't be proud. Like, I don't want everyone to think like, you know, my church talked about meekness being meek. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is humility. I honestly, I just married, and you did a great job there. Like marrying gratitude and humility is a secret sauce. That's a superpower. Man, I did not plan to go anywhere with this this interview today. Like it's totally gone a, a totally different path, man. And so uh, I appreciate you getting me to open up. Like this was supposed to be interviewing you. So way to flip the script today. Way That's to change the, the game. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about ancient stuff, but like you talked about in that same chapter on failure, that African proverb. Would you mind sharing that? Sure. Smooth seas don't make the best sailors. Something like that. Everything I've ever learned has come from a failure, a struggle, a misstep, or some trip and fall. I sometimes use the analogy of a mountain, like when you're young and you're ambitious, and we'll talk about that word later, but, and I remember reading an article and it said something like, every great CEO, you know, gets fired. Every great CEO fails. Everybody. And I was like, you know, I'm going to the moon. I knew I wanted to be CEO from the time I was a young kid. I'm like, I'm doing this. And then you get a little older and you, you find out that, that the mountain analogy is all wrong because you get to the top. The only thing you see when you're at the top is one is like it's lonely. Two, you see a whole mountain range. You, you kind of gear up to climb. And three, you look down and you look like all the joys on the climb. Even if you have an anvil around your neck, a piano tied to your back, and you're tripping over tree stumps, that's where the learning is. That's where the fun is. That's where the relationships are. That's where the experiences are. The memories, the moments, it's all in that climb. It's not on a view. How long do you stay up there anyway? I don't know, five, 10 minutes. Beautiful. A couple selfies. Put on Instagram and move on. I always think about you know, how different we are for when and why and how we failed and what we learned. I've got friends that don't have that gift. They, they fail and they, they fall. And that's okay. You know, I just want you to fail forward. Fall forward. You'll learn something. You know, when you succeed, it's like, hey, congratulations, great job. You did this, you did that. Great strategy, great execution. Hey, I just want to thank Mary. Great job. Hey, I just want to thank the team back here. I thought you were awesome. Hey, by the way, great, great creative. You guys were made. That's our post ops. When something fails, we're like, okay, what are the three key decisions we made that, that took us in the wrong direction? Okay, what can we learn from the next time and apply? Okay, we've got these three things coming up. How can they apply and change our thinking? If we could add three resources to change the direction of this failure, what would it have been? Like that post-op, that's learning. You know, when we win, we're like, hey, it's like that Lego guy. Everything is awesome. That's when you win. <laughs> it's not that I love winning. Of course I want to win. Of course I want everything to go well. It's just, I don't spend a lot of time there because there's no, there's no gain. There's no growth. There's no learning. Again, I appreciate you saying that. I think back to, again, I've been in the army for 18 years and for the first, I don't know, 16 of it, 17 of it, if I'm being honest, I was very like forward focused, like... I want to get to this point. I want to get to this point. I want to get to this point. And what I found was like, at, once I got to the top of a mountain, like there was always another mountain beyond it. It was never enough. And then eventually I kind of learned just to borrow from the title of your book is like, I, I got to be where my feet are. Enjoy the journey, enjoy the ride itself and quit trying to look so far ahead that I'm not in the moment now. I think that's right. Like, I, I appreciate that. And by the way, it took me years and years and years and years and years and years to get there too. I had big eyes when I was young, big, big eyes. I was so ambitious. I didn't even know that there was a negative connotation to the word. Like, I just wanted to grow and get there as fast as I could. Now, I did it in a unique way in that, and this is one thing, I, if anyone's listening in their early, early on in their career, whatever that may be, I always use the example when I was 22 years old, I started as an assistant, marketing assistant. 
at the Nets, the New Jersey Nets at the time. And it was kind of like a drugs of society, worst franchise type. And we had this incredible president come in and he wanted to change the culture. And I just remember like the guy on my right is now running CAA Sports, which is the biggest talent agency in sports and entertainment. And the guy on my left built Barclays Center in Brooklyn and moved to Nets. Now he's running Rock Nation, the big uh, Jay-Z firm. And those are like two friends of mine. Now, they're good friends of mine. I was in one of their weddings and he was in mine. What if I wasn't such a good teammate? You know, you look at like in the service, like how many men you serve with side by side. Okay. I don't know, hundreds, thousands, some big number. What if that was your family? They're going to be all over the world doing different things in and out of the service forever. So for me, it's my sports business. It's really small. And so all the people I've worked with are now running sports organizations all over the world. So now for me, doing deals is easy. You know, getting access to opportunities is easy because they're all my friends running these companies. And I think like that's something people miss early on. Like they get the hard work thing. They either do it or don't, but they get it. It's like, I have to work unreasonably hard. I, I totally get that. But the relationship piece I call being an extraordinary teammate, that piece is probably the simplest one. That's just being a good person. That's like not trying to step on the next guy to get ahead. It's recognizing that um, my friend said it best the other day. Actually, it was Coach Beard. We're bringing it back to Coach Beard. That's great. Everything goes back to Coach Beard. When Nate in season two wanted to be the head man, wanted to be the head job. And Coach Beard said to him, you know, trees don't fight for sunlight. In other words, like everybody can shine. And so if you're the type of teammate that looks to help others shine, life will be pretty good for you for a long time. And yeah, there'll be some people who step on you on the way for sure. And they'll get a short-term gain. They'll be ferreted out and they won't make it. But in the short term, like somebody can step on you and gain. But I think the long approach, the long term, like think out. You know, if you're totally Machiavellian, you're like, okay, be a good person. Life will get better. But if you're not, you just be a good person. And I believe in like the karmic universe. It will come back to you. I think we're, we're getting down to like the last 17 minutes. And there's, uh, God, there's so many questions I want to ask. And this has such a been such a powerful and personal interview, which was really surprising. Just because, again, I had my questions that you messed up today. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that you're talking about, like the teamwork, the, the teammates, is, is culture. And that's something I've been super just interested, super curious about is culture. And one of the stories that you tell in the book that I'm going to steal is the Purple Water Buffalo and the battle at Kruger Park. If nobody picks up the book, which I doubt they will after this interview, like you have to read Be Where Your Feet Are. It's, it's such a great book. Will you tell that story? Because that I thought well, that was awesome. I started at Madison Square Garden. And, and so I'm raised in New York. So to be president of Madison Square Garden, I think I was 38, 37, 38, young guy. And I almost couldn't believe that opportunity. And I've had a really fun career, NBA and 76ers and Devils. It filled off the Eagles. I mean, it's a fun career, but I get to Madison Square Garden. This is the mecca of sports entertainment. I'm the freaking president of the organization. Knicks, Rangers, I mean, how cool is that, right? So I walk in and I typically am hired for change situations. So they usually, my, I remember one of my daughters saying, Dad, how come our teams don't win? I was like, huh? The Golden State Warriors are not calling your daddy. Let's put it that way, you know? In other words, it's okay. Like, I like that part. You know, and, and they have been through uh, some tough times with some sexual harassment stuff that was relatively public. And uh, they were grinding a bit. And uh, I was working for David Stern and he's good. God rest his soul, he's passed away, but very good friends with Jim Dolan, who's chairman of, of MSG. And they were talking and 
I was ready to go around something and it worked out. So I start there. And then the first day I, I brought everybody together in this theater, it's incredible theater. It's called Theater Massasburg, a beautiful theater. And I get up in front of everybody. I got mic'd up and, you know, the lights are on and I'm feeling really good about myself. And I say, hey, uh, some of you I know, some of you I'll get to know. Uh, but here are the three things that matter to me. Boom, boom, boom. But before we start, I just want to play a video. And so it's way too long. It's like 13 minutes long. And it's a little gory, but it takes place in Kruger Park, which is um, part of it's in South Africa. And um, there's a tourist and he's got a camera and he's just talking. And he says, look at the herd of water buffalo. They're coming across the, the savannah and he's following them. He made three, 400 water buffalo. And then he pans to the right and he's like, ooh, the lions are crouching in, in the bush. So the water buffalo are coming towards the water hole. And then the lions attack. He's like, the lions are attacking. And of course, they go after the small little baby water buffalo. They jump on his back, one of, one of the lions, and it tumbles into this little watering hole. And the lions are all in the watering hole. The water buffalo scatter, and they're just trying to settle in and kill this water buffalo. And the baby's just standing there in the water. And the lions can't get leverage. So they decide to try to drag the water buffalo out. So they're, they're dragging the water buffalo out on land. And just as they're about to go, a big crocodile comes in snaps on his leg and they play tug of war and it's all being narrated by this this tourist and finally the lions drag the water buffalo up and he says the lions have won the lions have won like it's a, a basketball game and so then he pans back and you see the water buffalo kind of like collecting and they're shoulder to shoulder and you see them walking like slowly towards the lions and this little baby lying on the ground and the lions are settling in for their morning snack and you can see like the water buffalo you see them like they're not really confident you know, but there are a lot of them. And so every once in a while, one will peel back, peel from the front and go to the back. Uh, and then they get close enough. And these water buffalo charge the lions and they scare them off and chase them off. And miraculously, the baby pops up and rolls back with the herd and they roll away. And then I put up a slide and it says, who do you want to be? And it says, you know, it has a picture of the tourist, lion, crocodile, water buffalo. It's like, do you want to be a tourist? And I would say, like, look, there's a piece of paper on the ground. Like, copy machine is broken. Team's losing. Ticket sales are down. Hey, marketing had a mistake on her collateral. Or do you want to be a, a lion? Let's pick on the, the weakest, smallest, right? That's easy. Somebody's struggling, let's go attack them. Or you can be a crocodile. When somebody's down, you kick them. Hey, sales missed their number again. Everything would be fine. They could just sell something, all that, that, that crap. I said, or you can be a water buffalo. And then I say, hey, and here's the good news. I don't want you to be anything you're not. But you just can't work here. And so that became a symbol of, of who we are. And it's, it's amazing. It's like, I define culture as what you celebrate and what you tolerate. So think about that. So culture is what you celebrate and what you tolerate. So not a week later, I got a call from a friend of mine whose son was interning there. And he's like, you're at Madison Square Garden? I said, like, yes. He's like, my son's interning. I said, no kidding. Send him up to see me. He's like, he's not going to come into your office. I said, are you kidding me? Send him up. I'd love to see him. Where is he working? I said, how's the experience been? Silence. And I was like, is it, is it bad for an intern? He's like, well, I mean, there was an incident. I was like, what incident? He said, well, he asked somebody for, you know, where the copy machine was. And the guy screamed at him, yelled at him, and called him all kinds of things and asked if he knew who he was. And I'm like, holy mackerel. So I fired that executive. Long time guy, wonderful guy, good friend. Because I wanted to make sure that everybody knew what we tolerated. And what we celebrated, we created these little, we had these little buffalo nickels. If you did something to be an extraordinary teammate, we just affixed the buffalo nickel to these little buffalo cards and you wrote it. One went to the person and one went right outside my office. So 
you know, in five months, there's like wallpaper of these incredible Buffalo stories of, of success. So again, what are we celebrating? Being an extraordinary teammate. What are we tolerating? You're a lion, you're a tourist, you're a croc, you're out. Now, not a lot of people made it then. We turned over the staff. Not, there's no pride in that, but that that has been certainly something that has trailed me. There, there's a way to fire people too. And in the military, you don't have that option. I just in extreme circumstances, but for us, we do in, in, in uh, corporate America. Like, so, so there's a way to do that. Even that's different. Like I, I've been down, I've had to worry about my family. I've had to worry about food and all that electricity, all that, that kind of stuff. And so, so the way I fire people over the years is very much, I guess, consistent with the way I see the world. I call you in, I say, Hey, sit down. You'd know that we have a problem because there are no surprises. You would know we would have had five, six, seven conversations. Here's what's happening. Here's what the expectations are. Here's where you're falling short. You would know. So you walk in and I would say, how are you doing? You say, I'm doing okay. And I'd say, hey, your future here is not looking right. Your opportunity to grow here doesn't exist. We've had conversations and this is not working out. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like for you to think about what you want to do next. And I'll help you get there. Because you know what? The same person we hired three years ago who was smart, talented, amazing, hardworking, creative, you're still the same person, but something hasn't clicked here or something hasn't worked. Could be you, could be the environment, could be the culture, could be your boss, could be just change. Who knows? doesn't really matter. But my pledge to you is I'm going to help you find your next job. And so let's do that together. Let's do that in the next three months. And that preserves the person's pride, okay? Preserves the person's financially, doesn't put them at risk, gives them an opportunity to get a soft landing because it's easy to find a job when you have a job. And I guess from a Machiavellian way, you'd say it saves some severance for the company. But for me, it's more about like preserving the relationship and the optics in a very small industry. So there's a way to shift people around without like humiliating them or embarrassing them or putting the company at risk or them at risk or their families at risk. That to me, like that's water buffalo work. That's what that is. You got to figure out like who you want to be for real every day. And it's not what you say you are, it's what you do. Because you can say it all day long, but people know. They know what you tolerate and they know what you celebrate. And you're a manager. And I, I use this example. It's like you have a sales rep and she is knocking it out of the park. Okay. And she's a jerk. She's difficult on finance. She's difficult with her manager. She's a terrible teammate. What are you going to do? I'm firing her. Okay. But what are you going to do? Can I celebrate her? Well, she's your number one rep. Well, it's a small company. I got a lot of pressure. No, no, I know you have company, but. Just so you know, if you celebrate that and or tolerate that, you just defined your culture. Like that's what your sales force is. And that's okay if that's what you choose. I'm not choosing that, but I'm, I don't make any judgments on what people choose to define their culture with. I would just challenge them intentionally. That is that word again. Be intentional about what you celebrate and what you tolerate. And if you're okay, you want dog eat dog, you want kill or be killed, you want Hey, this is all about the dog. That's what you'll get. That's your culture. If you want kind of kumbaya and results don't matter, and let's go sit around and hold hands and everything will be fun and we'll play music and nothing will ever get done. Okay. I don't want to work in that environment, but you know, some people might. And that probably exists somewhere. It's not going to exist for long because you'll be out of business, but maybe it does. But intentionally, you got to figure out what you want. I want a culture of accountability. I want a culture of extraordinary teammates. I want a culture of hard work. I want a culture of innovation. And growth and trying new things and, and debate and challenge. That's what I like, you know? So that's what I try to surround myself with. 
One of the things that I love about doing this podcast, Scott, is that I get to interview people from all walks of life, like not just the military, but like everything you just said there was the same stuff that the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division said several months ago. And he said, you got to fight for your culture every single day. And your culture is not what you say. It's not what's on a piece of paper. It's what you do. And you just echoed that, you know, in, in your own sphere of the world. So I, again, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time today. Like this was, uh, again, didn't go where I, I thought it was going to go. It got super personal, but this was a great conversation. I absolutely loved it. I love my time. Maybe I'll be back. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I appreciate that you read the Be Where Your Feet Are, that you enjoyed it enough. And I appreciate this platform. And I love your mission and what you're doing with this podcast. I, I'll be rooting for you. I will be listening in uh, anything, anytime on my end. Before you go, if people are listening to this and they're like, you know, I, I'm not a basketball fan. I've never heard of Scott O'Neill. Like, like where can they find you? Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter, ask Scott O'Neill on both. So those, those are the two. That's where I post content. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Scott. Again, this was, this was an amazing, powerful interview. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my Shoot me down